All right, I invite you to turn with me in the Bible to Mark chapter 6. If you're looking in one of the Pew Bibles, it's page 1000. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark to focus on who Jesus is and why he came and what it means to follow him. So let me read chapter 6, verses 1 through 13 for us this morning. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Have you ever experienced rejection where you least expected to receive it? Now, most of us expect to experience some rejection from people who don't know us personally or who have little in common with us or who have competing priorities and loyalties. So if you walk into Yankee Stadium wearing a Red Sox cap and jersey, you can expect that the other fans around you may not be very pleased to see you because you have openly declared your allegiance to a rival team. Or if you have any kind of dispute with the IRS about how much taxes you owe and how to interpret the minute details of tax laws, you can expect that the IRS will do all they can to collect as much money as the tax laws authorize them to collect. They will not be inclined to show you any mercy or give you any benefit of the doubt just because you're an upstanding citizen and you did the best you could based on all that you knew. Right? We all expect to, ex to experience rejection in some situations, in some circumstances. But I think rejection is particularly painful when it comes from someone who knows you personally, who maybe shares some of your loyalties, and who seems to have much in common with you. Unexpected rejection can be deeply painful and disappointing. And that's where this morning's passage begins. Jesus being rejected in his own hometown. Now, there are two parts to this morning's passage. We'll look at them in turn. Number one, unexpected rejection, verses 1 to 6. Number two, 
an expanded mission, verses 6 to 13. Unexpected rejection and expanded mission. So I want to look at these two themes and uh, jump, uh, delve into them. So first, unexpected rejection. Now, a little context for the last few weeks. Uh, we've been looking at the passages leading up to this one in Mark, and we've seen crowds of people gathering around Jesus, listening to his teaching, witnessing his miracles. Jesus has demonstrated his authority over nature, over demons, over sickness, and even over death. He's just raised a little, uh, a 12-year-old girl from, from death. Uh, so things are sort of moving along with Jesus' ministry. And now we see Jesus taking a trip back to his hometown of Nazareth. Now, today, Nazareth is a major city in Israel, has about 80,000 people. It's the capital of the northern district of Israel. But back then, it was a small town up in the hills, off the beaten track. The population in Jesus' day was somewhere between 100 and 500 people, scattered over about 60 acres of rocky hillside. Nazareth was not well known, so except for the New Testament, it's not mentioned in any historical documents or any writings. It's mentioned one, one brief list from that era, but otherwise it's not mentioned for 200 more years. And uh, archaeologists, archaeologists have done some digs there, and they've, uh, but they, they haven't found a lot from, this, from Jesus' time just because there doesn't seem to have been much. It was a small town up in the hills. And uh, the, the, it wasn't very well off. There was only enough fertile soil up there on that sort of ridge to support subsistence agriculture. Uh, if you wanted to be somebody or do something important, what you would do is you would leave Nazareth and move to a couple towns that were nearby and had more economic and social opportunities. And there were a couple towns a few miles away. So Nazareth was, you know, if these days people would call folks from Nazareth rednecks. Okay? If that's, that's where Jesus grew up. That's where he was raised. In fact, one of Jesus' disciples, Nathaniel, when he first heard that Jesus was from Nazareth, his comment was, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Anyway, <laughs> Nazareth was the town, though, where Jesus was raised, and his family still lived there, and so he went up there for a visit and brought his disciples with him. Now, Jesus might have had a few reasons for making this trip. He might have wanted to get a little quiet time with his disciples, about 25-mile journey from Capernaum, his base by the lake, to Nazareth up in the hills. Uh, maybe he wanted to visit his immediate family in particular, but I think the clearest reason for his trip was Jesus had been teaching and healing and conducting his ministry in all of these uh, larger towns by the lake, but he also wanted to offer the same thing, teaching and healing, to his hometown. Okay, so Jesus wasn't one of these people who had left Nazareth and said, never going back there. No, Jesus went back there. He went back to his hometown for a visit uh, because he cared about the people there. And he brought his disciples. Now, you might expect that if Jesus had gathered such a following in these towns by the lake, that he would receive sort of a hero's welcome when he came back home. You know, Jesus had left home on his own. Now he's coming back with a band of loyal students, his disciples. Uh, it's a little bit like if you grew up in a small town in Connecticut playing basketball for your town rec league and then your high school team, and then you made it to Yukon and you made it on the varsity team. And then you came back home for a visit, 
maybe to cheer on the high, one of the high school basketball teams, right? You'd sort of be a hometown hero, right? Now you made it to the team that might get another national championship. Well, that's not how the people in Nazareth saw Jesus, though. Now, they did listen to him, verse 2. They heard him talk in the synagogue. It says they were astonished. In other words, they were impressed and they were surprised. Uh, they acknowledged that he had displayed great wisdom in his teaching and great power in his miracles. But instead of turning toward Jesus, they turned away from him. Notice they asked five questions. But notice that they don't ask their questions to Jesus. They just talk to each other. Uh, now, throughout the Gospel of Mark, whenever people come to Jesus and ask him questions and want to understand more, he never turns them away. And he's always happy to talk with anyone who comes to him with sincere questions. But these people didn't come and talk with Jesus. They only talked about him. Uh, now, it's actually the same thing that Adam and Eve did back in the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis. So, if you know that story, the serpent comes to Eve uh, and she and, and starts questioning what God had said. Uh, and now the serpent's questions weren't sincere. They're sort of trying to undermine God's character and his authority and uh, portray God as this uh, miserly uh, figure who just wants to prevent them from having any good things. And Eve starts talking with the serpent about God, but she doesn't go to God and talk with God about the serpent and the questions he's asking. And Adam is right there with her, and he doesn't do anything either. Um, you see, they, they didn't go to God to sort out their questions. They just started talking to somebody else, right? So let me encourage you, if you're troubled by questions and doubts, if you have questions about the Bible or about Christianity, uh, bring your questions to God. And this is a place where we can talk about our questions together and look at what God has said in the Bible uh, and how that addresses our questions. Uh, so questions are not off limits. Uh, search the scriptures, see what they say, pray and ask God for wisdom, talk with mature Christians, because probably you're not the first person in the history of the universe to come up with whatever question you're wrestling with. There's probably some other people who have wrestled through that question and looked at what the Bible says about it before. But again, these people don't come to Jesus with their questions, and in fact, they don't even seem to think carefully about the answers to their questions. So look at their questions. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? You see, everyone knew that Jesus didn't get his wisdom primarily from another rabbi or another teacher. But these people weren't willing to say that Jesus' wisdom came from God. They just sort of say, where did he get it? But they don't answer, you know, they don't sort of seriously consider how to answer their question. The next question, how are such mighty works done by his hands? Again, they're assuming, they're acknowledging that Jesus has done uh, miracles or mighty works. But they don't sort of lead that, take the question and go to the logical conclusion, right? There are two logical conclusions. One is Jesus was channeling some kind of evil powers, which some people accused him of, uh, but we dealt with that a couple weeks ago um, in another passage. Or they could acknowledge that Jesus was empowered by God himself. Again, they don't seem to really consider where are the questions leading them. Um, and they just say, isn't this guy just a carpenter? Don't we know his brothers and sisters? We know his family. So he can't be very different from his family, right? They sort of put Jesus in a box. 
They're like, we know that his dad was a carpenter. He was trained to be a carpenter. That word can also mean a stonemason. It basically means somebody who works with his hands, uh, a builder, a repairer, a contractor. Uh, and they think that's all he can ever do. They sort of put him in a box and think he's just a child of our village and nothing more. Of course, what they didn't consider is that this was God's intent all along. You see, God's intent all along is that his own son would become an ordinary human being, that he would fully identify with us, that he would be raised in an ordinary village among ordinary people. To, you see, the Son of God became fully human just as we are, and yet he wasn't his God himself. See, it was part of God's purpose all along. And they sort of missed that. You see, these people seemed to have had every opportunity to believe, but they just would not believe in Jesus. I mean, they had been exposed to Jesus longer than anyone else. I mean, he had been around for 30 years. He moved, you know, he, he was born elsewhere, but he was back there by the time he was probably two or three. He was there nearly his whole childhood as well as his early adulthood. So nobody who lived in Nazareth could say, we never met Jesus, we never had an opportunity to know him at all. But as verse 3 said, it says, they took offense at him. You see, some people seem to have every opportunity, every ad advantage to, to know Jesus, and yet they just won't believe. Now, of course, remember what we've also seen the last few weeks is Mark has shown us several people who uh, we might never expect to believe in Jesus, who do, like the first time they meet him. So last week we, uh, we looked, we saw Jairus, a synagogue ruler who believed in Jesus, even though many other leaders in the synagogue were, were hostile to Jesus at the time. But Jairus believed in Jesus. We saw a woman who was an outcast, who had been sort of an outcast in her society for 12 years, and she believed, and she had a, a bleeding disorder, and she believed in Jesus just because of what she had heard about him even before she met him personally. And we saw a crazy man living in the tombs at the beginning of chapter five, who was sort of cutting himself and, and, and tormented, and he came to believe in Jesus. So all kinds of people have come to believe in Jesus who we might not expect to, but these people who had grown up with him just don't. And you know, that's still true today. Sometimes people who you might expect to believe in Jesus who've been around him for so long just don't seem to come to trust and believe in him. And other people are, see him and they're like, that's what I've been looking for my whole life. He's, he's, the, he's the one. So we can never predict in advance who will respond favorably to Jesus. And so that's one reason why we need to offer the message about Jesus to anyone and everyone as God gives us an opportunity and not limit who we share it with because of our own preconceived notions. All right, now look at Jesus' response in verses 4 to 6 to the people who rejected him. Uh, verse 4, he quotes a well-known proverb. It's sort of a warning. He's sort of saying, you know this proverb, that prophets aren't without honor except in their hometown, and yet you're falling into the very trap that the proverb describes. Uh, second, verse 5 says he did only a few miracles there. It says he could do no mighty work there. I think that simply means that Jesus was committed to following the plan and purpose of his father. So the purpose of Jesus' miracles was not to force people who 
didn't even want to talk to him to uh, believe in him. No, the purpose of Jesus' miracles was to show his authority and demonstrate his compassion. And so Jesus did miracles primarily for people who came to him and asked for help. Um, but he didn't do miracles because nobody was coming to him. And, and, and very few people were asking for his help in Nazareth. Uh, third, verse 6 says he marveled at their unbelief. That's the same word that's translated in verse 2, astonished. So it means Jesus was surprised and disappointed by the negative response he received. You see, Jesus knows what it feels like to be unexpectedly rejected. To have those who had grown up around him take offense at him. And so if you've been, if you've experienced that, if you've been unexpectedly rejected, if you've been despised by people who you thought were close to you, maybe people you grew up with or maybe people you spent many years of your life with, Jesus has been there. Jesus knows what that feels like. Jesus understands. So that's the first half of this passage, unexpected rejection. But the second half of this passage is a contrasting theme, expanded mission. What does Jesus do when he's unexpectedly rejected in Nazareth? He goes about among the villages teaching. So he sort of launches out. This is the third time in Mark where Jesus launches out, uh, going from village to village, teaching about the kingdom of God. But this time he does something new. Verse 7 he sent out the twelve, that is his uh, apostles, his uh, closest uh, group of followers. He sends them out in pairs to preach and heal and cast out demons in his name. So it's not just Jesus going from village to village, but six pairs of apostles going from village to village ministering in his name. Now this had been Jesus' plan all along. If you remember uh, chapter 3 verse 14, when Jesus had called the twelve, it says he appointed them to be with him and to be sent out to preach and cast out demons. So it was his plan all along. First, he said, come with me, watch me, watch what I'm doing, listen to what I'm saying. And now he's saying, okay, go out. Now it's your turn, and, I'm go and, and you're going to be my representatives to go out and continue this work. Now, uh, if you consider the apostles' track record so far, you might expect that this new venture, sending them out on their own, would not be very likely to succeed, right? You'd sort of expect Jesus goes to his hometown, you'd think he'd be a hometown hero, and eh, wrong. You sort of expect he sends out these apostles to these new villages, and it's all going to flop. <coughs> but it doesn't. Um, so at the end of chapter 4, Jesus asked the apostles a question. He says, do you still have no faith? In other words, very recently, they hadn't learned the most basic lesson of all. The most basic lesson of all is trust and rely on Jesus. They were still learning the foundational, most basic lesson of all. And then last week, if you were here, I pointed out that the 12 disciples have said nothing helpful or insightful. They've only said stupid comments so far in Mark. Okay, they've spoken three times. None of what they said was helpful or insightful. And now Jesus sends them out and says, go and preach and teach to others. You might think, really? Jesus, do you know what you're doing here? Um, and look, verse 8 and 9. Jesus says, take very few resources. No food, no supplies, no money, uh, no backpack, only a staff, sandals, a belt, and the clothing on your backs. 
Uh, now it's actually very interesting. There's, uh, I will take some water. Yes, thank you. Um, uh, in, in the book of Exodus, when the people of Israel are about to leave Egypt, Exodus 12, verse 11 says they should leave, thank you, Nathan, um, with uh, the clothes on their back and a staff in their hand and sandals on their feet and a belt around their waist. So in some ways, Jesus is saying, Jesus is sort of reminding them of how the Israelites left Egypt and saying, this is something very important that's happening, right? What God's doing through, through me and through you. Um, but the, the disciples were to be, here's the point, the disciples are to be entirely dependent on God to provide for them along the way through the people that they would meet. So again, you look at this mission and you think this is likely to fail. They're ill-equipped and they're ill-prepared. But look at verse 12 and 13, and Jesus even warns them, verse 11, they, you might be rejected. Verses 12 and 13, they go out. They proclaim, the people, they call people to repent, which means to change their minds and turn to God. And uh, they cast out many demons and they heal many sick people. And, you know, that must have been so encouraging to these sort of fledgling followers of Jesus. Right? They're just starting out following him. And Jesus sends them out on something that seems like a risky endeavor. And they see some good results. People experiencing healing and deliverance and freedom and that must have been so encouraging to them now what can we learn from uh, their sort of first attempt at missionary work let me give a few practical lessons number one Jesus can work through you to bless others even if you are relatively untrained and inexperienced as a Christian. So you don't need to wait until you have studied for years and years. You don't need to wait until you feel like you're an expert Christian. If you feel like you're an expert Christian, then you might be tempted to pride. So that's actually a danger if you feel like you're an expert Christian. Um, but just start by sharing whatever God has already given you. So here's some practical ideas. Maybe you can pray for someone else who has a particular need. Or maybe you can tell someone else about Jesus. Just whatever you know about him. Start with whatever you know about him. Okay, there's more you don't know, but I'm sure, fine. But start with sharing whatever you do know about him. Uh, maybe you can invite someone over for a meal. Show hospitality. Maybe you can help out in one way or another with Vacation Bible School this summer. Um, Jesus can work through you to bless others, even if you're relatively untrained and inexperienced. Second lesson, whatever you do, depend on Jesus. That's why Jesus told the twelve to only bring the bare essentials. If they had all kinds of fancy resources and elaborate plans, they wouldn't have learned the most basic lesson, trust and depend on Jesus. Sometimes Jesus calls us to stretch, to do something that feels like a little bit more than we feel ready for. And the reason he calls us to that is it helps us learn to depend on him. So Jesus can work through you to bless others, even if you're untrained and inexperienced. Whatever you do, depend on Jesus. Third, serve Jesus alongside other Christians. Jesus, not just all alone. Jesus sent out the apostles two by two. And I think working in pairs or teams can help us in many ways. It can sort of balance out our gifts and perspectives 
and compensate for our weaknesses. It can help us stay encouraged and not give up when times get hard. So finding another Christian that you can pray for others with or lead a Bible study with or uh, invite uh, people over and sort of share that responsibility uh, is a great way to do things. Fourth lesson, sometimes we will experience rejection like Jesus did. Verse 11. Now, uh, we need to unpack this a little bit. Sometimes people take offense at Christians if because Christians are acting in ways that are thoughtless or insensitive or selfish or hypocritical. So just because people take offense at you and reject you doesn't automatically mean that you're on the right track. Sometimes it means you should examine your own heart and consider if you've said or done something that might have offended someone else and acknowledge where you've fallen short. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 3. He said, we put no obstacle, and that's the same word as verse 6 in our passage, uh, sorry, verse 3 in our passage, offense. We put no obstacle, no offense, no stumbling block in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. So what Paul's, Paul went to great lengths and sacrificed many of his personal preferences in order to reach all kinds of people with the good news of Jesus Christ. So Paul was very careful to avoid anything that would be displeasing to God or that would be unhelpful and cause unnecessary offense to others that he was wanting to serve. But Paul also knew that if he proclaimed the truth about Jesus, that people would inevitably, some people would inevitably be offended by that. So in 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul said, we preach Christ crucified, and he said that message is a stumbling block or an offense. Now, what does that mean? So why did Jesus die on the cross? Because our sin is so serious that the only way God could remove it is through the sacrificial death of his own son. You see, the message of the cross says we are not inherently good and righteous people. We can't just sort of take pride in ourselves and think we're okay. No, the message of the cross says we can't cleanse ourselves from our sin before God because God is pure and righteous and holy and we need to rely on what Jesus has done. We need to trust him to rescue us. And that message offends our human pride. Because our human pride wants to just rely on ourselves and think I'm good and maybe other people around me aren't quite so good. And Jesus' message says we're all in the same mess. And so Paul says some people will be offended by that message. Uh, the message of the crosses also can be offensive because it means that if we follow Jesus, we need to surrender to him day by day. That we can't just do whatever we want. Paul says, you are not your own, you were bought at a price, so glorify God in your body. See, if we follow Jesus as Lord, sometimes we'll experience rejection, not because of our own faults, but because we're identifying with him. Because we're living according to his commands, because we're sharing the message that he has given us. But, you know, when we experience rejection or disappointment, Jesus invites us to draw near to him. So here's the thing. In this passage, you see 
Jesus was rejected, and then out of that, his mission expanded. So we see that pattern in the story of Jesus. But this isn't the only time we see that pattern in the story of Jesus, because you know what happens at the end of Jesus' life? He's rejected not just in his hometown. He doesn't just have people who take offense at him and don't want to talk to him. He's crucified on a cross, mocked and beaten. And Isaiah 53 says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But what was the purpose of Jesus being rejected and dying on the cross? It goes on to say, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That means our sins. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. You see, because Jesus was rejected, we can be accepted by God. Because Jesus took our place, and through his wounds we can find healing. You see, Jesus was rejected by the leaders of his own nation, not just in his hometown, but also the leaders of his own nation, many of them. But through his death and resurrection, his message has now gone out to the ends of the earth. You see, this morning's passage is not about two completely different ideas. Unexpected rejection and expanded mission. It actually is about how unexpected rejection can be the doorway to expanded mission. And you see that in Jesus' life, right here in Mark chapter 6. And you see that in Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection and how... He sent his followers to go out to the ends of the earth to proclaim that anyone who comes to him can find forgiveness of sins and a new life with him. And when we follow Jesus, we start to experience that pattern in our own life. You see, when you follow Jesus, your story, your life will start to look like Jesus. The patterns that you see in Jesus' life, you'll begin to experience those in your life as you trust him and live in union with him. You see, sometimes when you're rejected, it can feel very painful and it can take the wind out of your sails and it can make you think twice about launching into any new initiative because you worry that you'll get the same negative response all over again. But the Apostle Paul wrote this, God comforts us in all our afflictions so that we can comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with, that we ourselves have received from God. He says, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. You see, when we experience rejection and disappointment in union with Jesus, that's not a dead end. We don't have to stay there and stew in that, and we don't have to let the rest of our life be defined by that rejection. We don't have to live in reaction and bitterness to that rejection. We can see that through Jesus, that can also be a doorway to an expanded mission, to a new opportunity, to a new purpose that God is opening up for us in our lives. So unexpected rejection is the doorway to expanded mission. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for sending your son Jesus Christ. And we thank you for his faithfulness. We thank you for 
his love even for those who rejected him. And we thank you, Lord, uh, for how, by your grace, Lord, even when we experience rejection and disappointment in sometimes very painful ways, Lord, that through that you can open a door uh, for us uh, to see and, and carry through with uh, some of your good purpose for us in our lives. And Lord, we pray that we would experience, when we experience rejection, we pray that we would experience it and that, that would draw us closer to you. We pray that we would not run away from you. We pray that we would not just hide ourselves in the corner, but that we would turn to you, come before you, and find your strength and healing and encouragement. And we pray that we'd be able to comfort others with the comfort that we experience and receive from you. So Lord, we pray that as we go through this next week, that we, uh, and that we would also experience the power of your Holy Spirit um, as we depend on you and as we seek to go out and bless other people in your name. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.